Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today, we are bringing you the next episode in our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, he'll be in Genesis chapter 30, verses 14 through 24, looking again at the children of Jacob born by Leah, and finally, the opening of the womb of Rachel. We want to thank you for listening and hope that you are encouraged by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan teaching on Genesis chapter 30, verses 14 through 24. Okay, we're in Genesis chapter 30, and we've had the birth of Leah's children, and Rachel's made Bilhah, and Leah's made Zilpah, and that's taken us down some time, and now we come to the Mandrake story in chapter 30, verses 14 to 16. So I'll read that, and we'll consider that section. Now Reuven went in the days of the wheat harvest and found some love apples, the way he translates it, in the field, and brought them to Leah his mother. Rachel said to Leah, Please give me of your son's love apples, mandrakes. And she said to her, Is your taking away my husband such a small thing that you would now take away my son's mandrakes? And Rachel said, Very well, he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's Mandrakes. So when Yaakov came home from the fields in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired, yes, hired. Hiring I have hired you for my son's love apple. So he lay with her that night. That's the passage. Now, the question is, what on earth is going on here? Well, the first thing to ask, I guess we're always curious about, is what are these? And they're a kind of fruit called a mandrake. It grows around the ancient world. I guess there's been some dispute about whether it grows in the ancient world or not, but uh, in this part of the world, but now there's no doubt about it. And I've never seen one. What is it supposed to do? Well, in Song of Solomon 7.13, We have another reference to them in connection with love. The word in Hebrew is very close to the word for love. In Canticle 7.13, Come, my beloved, let's go out into the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let's rise early. Go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine is budded. Blossoms have opened. Pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and over our doors are all the choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. So now, the mandrakes are blooming. Oh, there's some connection with the springtime, the vine is budded, the blossoms have opened, pomegranates have bloomed, mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and the desire to go have a camp out in the woods for the husband and wife. Well, also this word mandrake, or love, is underneath the name David. Dawid. Dodaw is the word for mandrake. No one is absolutely sure what the word David means. 
odd. We have some of the names in the Bible, it's so obvious what they mean, and here's this name. It seems to mean beloved, and it's very closely related to this. So that's what they are. Now, what they do? They make you fertile. Are they aphrodisiacs? Well, no, they're not. In fact, don't do either one. Were they regarded that way? Well, it seems from the Song of Solomon that the whole idea of making your bedroom smell good and all this was regarded as just in a general way enhancing the whole experience of marriage. And so that much we can always say about nice smells and things of that sort. What was going on in the minds of the people here would seem that this was something delightful that was at least in their minds closely associated with marriage. It doesn't have to be taken in some raw sense as ancient Viagra, but rather as, we could just say it this way, this fruit and its smells are the things that were associated in people's minds with marital relations. And so, you got a bunch of them, and that's what everybody starts to think about, and that's what everybody associates it with, and so that's how this is set up. I don't think that there's any need to try to get medical on the question of whether there's some chemical in this that has some effect on the body. I don't think that's the idea. It's psychological. And in that case, there's no difficulty with it. There's no view of magic here. It's just psychology. Now, this is what they saw. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that, but I think that there's a parallel here. This odd story is followed up by another odd story where Jacob does a kind of a vegetable thing to get his animals to reproduce, and we'll have to make the connection between those two things. But yeah, that's right. I think they are connected in the passage. Exactly how is a good question. <laughs> now, what other things can we say about this story? I hope that's enough to set aside... The first question that comes to mind as modern people, you know, what is this, what on earth is going on here? Second thing to notice is that Reuben is old enough to do this. That takes us down in time into Jacob's last six years of service. This isn't probably a three-year-old boy roaming around in the field. He's old enough. Leah has been barren for some time. We know that Joseph was born in the seventh year of the marriage. This has to be after that. So these next two sons are younger than Joseph, the point that we've made over and over again. This is in the days of the wheat harvest. That's what we call May, around that time of the year. Compare Ruth chapter 3 and the threshing floor for marital associations. In other words, you've got in the Bible the idea of harvest time and celebration and springtime, late spring, and the wheat harvest coming around the time of Pentecost, as you know, and marriage. Ruth goes to see Boaz at the wheat harvest on the threshing floor. And that's the time of the year. It would probably be the same time of year you have in Judges. The last chapter doesn't say what time of the year this is, but there's a feast year to year in Shiloh, and the girls come out and dance, and the guys go catch the girls as wives. Interesting story by itself, and one that can be misinterpreted in a more negative way than it should be. But at any rate, this is that time of year. 
And we just saw in the Song of Solomon the time when everything blossoms out. It's the time when a young man's fancy turns to love, and I guess girls as well. So this is spring. Again, that's the association. If there's more to it, more deep constructs here, I don't see them. There's enough here without it. What else is going on? Well, that's verse 14. Those are the details there. He finds mandrakes, brings them to Leah. Rachel wants some mandrakes. Rachel asks politely. She doesn't order Leah around, even though she's first wife. I guess she could have said, But she says, please. Leah responds. And we see something of the tension that's in the marriage as to who's the real first wife. Is you're taking away my husband such a small thing that you now want to take away my son's things as well? Rachel said, very well, he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's love apples. And I want you to notice here, every time it says, son's love apples. Son's mandate. His reply makes more sense when we realize that Joseph has been born. Jacob is now spending all his time with Rachel. She wants more sons, as the name Joseph implies. Here again, if you contextualize this by paying close attention to the chronology and the details, you can see some of what's happened here. Leah not only doesn't seem to be having children anymore, but Joseph has been born. As a matter of fact, it's possible that chapter 29, verse 35, does not imply any biological condition in Leah at all. She became pregnant and bore a son, and she named him Judah. Then she stopped giving birth. Verse 9 of the next chapter, chapter 30, verse 9. Now when Leah saw that she stopped giving birth, she took Zilpah and gave her to Jacob. Now, why did she stop giving birth? The natural way we read this is that Jacob was sleeping with her from time to time, and she just didn't get pregnant anymore. But this is after Joseph has been born. And it may be that Jacob is just spending all of his time with Rachel and isn't sleeping with Leah anymore, and that's why she isn't having children. Or both. It's apparent that he hasn't been sleeping with her because she has to come up with this deal to get him to. And as soon as he does, she is pregnant. So it may be the only reason she wasn't having children is that Jacob has not been visiting her tent. So that's another possibility. We're not told enough, we're just told exactly what we're told and not exactly why. But you could contextualize it and read it that way as well. It doesn't say she became barren. It doesn't say she couldn't have children. It just says she didn't. And it's clear that, at least for some period of time, Jacob hadn't been visiting her. That may be all there was to it. At any rate, that changes now. So, verse 15 again, Leah's reply makes more sense when we realize Joseph has been born, Jacob is now spending all his time with Rachel. She wants more sons, as the name Joseph implies, when we get to it. So, Leah says, you have our husband, but at least I have my sons. So, there's something of an undercurrent there. You've taken away my husband, in other words, you're the first wife, and now you want the things that belong to my son as well. You're going to take everything away from me, huh? And Rachel's reply is gracious, and we'll have to explore more of what that means in a minute. Rachel does something that sort of helps restore the marriage. So then, verse 16, 
When Jacob came home from the fields in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me. There's that straightforward expression that we've seen already. Jacob came into his wife. For I have hired, yes, hired you for my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night. This word hiring is doubled up here. And this points to another theme in this passage. It's a little bit hard to know exactly how to put it all together. And yet it's there and you hear it as you hear the text read. Leah's hiring is probably to be taken as slightly humorous since Jacob has been hired by Laban. So you've been hired by Laban. Remember this is in the last section of the time when Laban has hired Jacob and he's paying him striped and speckled and plaid sheep and goats. So now she says, I've hired you too. Now that might be humorous. It also is thematic in the passage. It's clear that Jacob becomes reconciled with Leah after this because he has two more children through her without any hiring. She says, I've hired you for tonight. And then she has Issachar. But then we read that she became pregnant again and had Zebulun. And then she became pregnant again and gave birth to Dinah. So, there's a reconciliation that takes place here with Leah. Whatever has been going on, see, it's obvious he has not been sleeping with Leah for a while. Leah has to get it started up again with these mandrakes. Four times the phrase, your son's mandrakes, my son's mandrakes, occurs. This has to be significant. The son is behind the reconciliation that takes place. Recall that Reuben means, behold, a son. So the son is doing something to reconcile the mother and the father. The son as reconciler is a mission that Reuben ultimately fails at, and a better son is needed. Now this is setting something up, and we want to see it just at the beginning here. We want to see how it begins. The son... Remember, Genesis is full of stuff about sons. Isaac is a son... He is the son who is sacrificed. Jacob and Esau are sons, and they're sons the father has to choose between, being responsible or being irresponsible. This son, Reuben, starts out being a reconciler. It's not really intentional on his part, but the way the story works out, he brings these mandrakes, Rachel uses the mandrakes as a way to reconcile Leah and Jacob, and a reconciliation takes place that heals the division in the family. So the son in this narrative, Jacob's son, Abraham's son, is going to be a sacrifice. Isaac's sons are going to wrestle with God and have a kingdom. Jacob's son is going to reconcile. And Reuben starts out, we begin to see tension and reconciliation take place in what Reuben does. Now, does Reuben continue to be the firstborn son who is going to grow up and be the reconciler? No, what does Reuben do? Eventually. Yeah, he sleeps with one of Jacob's, his father's concubines. Now, that doesn't do any reconciliation. Now, Who's the next son in line then? The next son, if the firstborn son is set aside, who's the next son? Remember? Who's the next son after Reuben? 
Is it Simeon or Levi? It's Simeon, isn't it? Yes. Is Simeon going to grow up and be the reconciler? No. No. No, it's not going to be him. How about Levi? No. No, those two guys, they wound up setting Jacob at estranged from everybody else in the community. So Jacob had to move away. So who's the next son that's born after that? We don't know. It's either Judah or Joseph, isn't it? But guess which one I think is the next one who was born, actually. Joseph, because you see, it makes sense for Jacob to give the robe of many colors, assuming it was many colors, the special robe, to Joseph if Joseph is next in line. We always read that passage as if Jacob skipped over all his other kids and gave it to Joseph, who was the youngest. Well, we now know Joseph is not the youngest. He's about the same age as Judah, and if he was born two minutes before Judah was born, he would be next in line. And so there would be no problem with giving him the robe because the first three sons have been disqualified. Does Joseph become a reconciler? Yeah, that's exactly what he does. He reconciles all the brothers to each other and brothers to their father, and all these reconciliations take place. And so that's why I say this theme that the son starts to do some reconciliation is picked up and becomes an important theme as we go. And of course it comes down to Jesus who reconciles us to God, reconciles us to each other, turns the heart to the fathers, to the children, and the children to the fathers, as it says in Malachi, husbands and wives, all the different kinds of reconciliations that need to take place. Jesus does because he's the reconciler. But there's something that starts here. Now, what is the instrument that is used in reconciliation here? Just want to make sure we catch this. Mandrakes, which are what? They're food. Joseph also uses food, doesn't he? He sets up this dinner and gives five portions to Benjamin and he uses food as a way to do it. And so does Jesus. Remember that the bread and the Lord's Supper signifies the church as the body of Christ just as much as it signifies Jesus' own body. And so reconciliation to God and reconciliation to one another is in the Lord's Supper. And so if you want to know where the mandrakes are today, this here is a mandrake. This. That's a mandrake. And it puts us together with God and with each other and carries forth in the ultimate way the things that are here. Now remember, we don't want to read this and say, oh, this is just a bunch of symbols. No, they're general themes. But the themes that are here are themes that are expanded and become more concrete as time goes along. So maybe it's no surprise that it's in the wheat harvest that mandrakes are found. If mandrakes are found in the wheat harvest, then maybe they're associated with being little loaves of bread. Maybe that's why we're told it. You have to always ask the question, why does God say these particular things? Why not just say, one day Reuben went out and found some mandrakes in the field. Why are we told that it was in the wheat harvest? There's some reason why we are. Maybe just to set up a tiny association that we can now see with the whole completed Bible links up this fruit of reconciliation with the bread of the Lord's Supper, which is itself a food of reconciliation. Maybe. Well, now we come then to Leah's last three children, where it gets 
that's going to be a little bit confusing here. Um, you just have it in your notes, and I'll do my best, and something to think about and keep in mind for the future. At any rate, verses 17 to 21, reading from the Fox translation. And God hearkened to Leah, so that she became pregnant and bore Yaakov a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my hire, because I gave my maid to my husband. So she called his name Yiscachar, there is hire. Once again, Leah became pregnant, and she bore a sixth son to Yaakov. And Leah said, God has presented me with a good present. This time my husband will prize me, for I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun, Prince. And afterwards she bore a daughter, and she called her name Dinah, or Dinah. I have to say these in Hebrew at least once with the accent at the end. Dinah. Hired wages, that's the name of Issachar. Hire or wage, Issachar. Man is Ish, so Yishachar means man of hire. And that's what his name means. Now, notice, Leah does not credit the mandrakes. She doesn't say, ah, mandrakes made me pregnant. <laughs> Nothing like that. She gives the credit to God. The word God, Elohim, is here. This time, Leah is relating to God, the Father, Elohim, the one who has power to give children. Remember, earlier, Leah is relating to Yahweh, the covenant husband God. But then throughout the rest of this passage, the emphasis is on God as the Father and giver of life and children. And she credits God for giving her the child. Then she says, and this is where it gets complicated, God has given me my hire, has paid me my wages, because I gave my maid to my husband. Now, what does that have to do with anything? That's not only a number of verses back or sentences back in the narrative, but how does it relate to what's going on here? Here's another one of those enigmas wrapped inside a mystery here in the text. The glory of God to conceal things, and now we have to be kings and search them out. What does it mean that God paid Leah a wage because she let Jacob sleep with Zilpah? And unless I'm missing something, that's a good question. I don't see the immediately obvious answer to it. My guess is this. When Jacob started sleeping with Zilpah, he stopped sleeping with Leah. That's a guess. Except we know that he did stop sleeping with Leah because she has to get these mandrakes to get him to start sleeping with her again. So he has stopped. The thing that's immediately before that is that Leah has given Zilpah her maid and Zilpah has had these two kids. So perhaps when Jacob started sleeping with Zilpah, he stopped sleeping with Leah. Thus Leah sacrificed herself in some way to provide Jacob with more sons and this is her payment for this sacrifice. Does that make sense? I'm open to suggestions. So, if Rachel's having children with her handmaid is part of this conflict between the two queens in the household, and it is intensified to the point where Jacob has taken Rachel's side and he just doesn't go to Leah at all, Leah offers her maid as a way to try to appease that situation, then that's the hire that's being paid, the wages that's being paid 
back here. She did something that that involved giving something up and undergoing a certain amount of disgrace, and now God has rewarded her by working out this reconciliation. Something like that seems to be behind it because she associates having another child and being reconciled to her husband as payment for giving the handmaid. And so we've got to work on that. That may tie in with some much broader patterns in the Bible that I'm not seeing. Sometimes the answer to these odd statements is not in the passage itself, but in seeing the connection to a larger pattern. But I'm not seeing it if it's there. We can do that much, though. And the larger connection here is this whole business of being hired. Jacob has had to work for his wife, and he works another seven years for his wife, and he works six years as a hired man. We are now down into that last six years as far as these last children are concerned. Issachar's name has two things in this passage, man of hire, as a reference to hiring Jacob for the night. Because she says, hey, I've hired you. Yes, I've hired you for the night with these mandrakes. And then... The second thing is a man of hire is Leah's reward or hire for giving Zilpah to Jacob. So the name has two references in context, which tells you hiring is in view here. <laughs> Everybody is hiring out to something else. This hiring motif seems to correspond to current events. Leah has hired out Zilpah to Jacob. The result is two children through Zilpah, and then the later hired wages in the form of Issachar. During the time that Zilpah was hired out to Jacob, Leah suffered deprivation. Jacob wasn't visiting her. Jacob has hired himself to Laban. The result is increased flocks during this time and eventually greater blessing. Lots of flocks. Lots of speckled and striped and spotted and polka dot and plaid sheeps and goats. During the time he hires himself to Laban, Jacob suffers deprivation and persecution. Jacob will say, hey, I had to spend all night outside and freezing cold and rain, sleet and oxygen and all that during the time that I was doing this for Laban. Nobody thanked me for it. And then, getting back to the link that was made earlier, Leah uses vegetable magic, in quotes, to hire Jacob and his blessed with sons, but she sees it as God who's really doing the blessing. And Jacob uses some kind of vegetable magic, that's all we can call it, to hire God's help and is blessed with flocks, but he sees it as God who really did the blessing. Remember Jacob's confession later on is, well, I saw that God showed me in the vision that actually when I put these striped rods in front of a sheep that it was actually him causing the genetics to work out in such a way and the sheep looking at these things didn't have anything to do with how they came out of the womb. What you're looking at at the time you get pregnant is not what your child comes out looking like. But that seems to have been in their mind. We'll have to explore that when we get there. So there are a number of parallels here and why they're here and exactly how it fits in. Maybe as time goes along we'll get, I'll come up with better ideas or maybe some of you will, but there seem to be these links. And we've already seen that there are other links in this story. Rachel saying that she wrestled with God as she wrestled with her sister is exactly what is all about Jacob. Jacob is wrestling with Yahweh while he's wrestling with Esau and Laban 
and his father Isaac. And all that comes up at Peniel where he wrestles with God all night long and God says, all these years you were wrestling with other people, it was really me. And that wrestling takes the form of prayer. When we get to chapter 32, we'll see that the wrestling is actually prayer. And I pointed out to you that Rachel's statement, a struggle of God, I struggle with my sister, means that whatever conflict there was between the two women, Rachel was wrestling in prayer over this situation. So in this story of the wives and the children, there are things that connect to the larger story of Jacob. And if all we were doing was studying this in a literature class, we would say, oh, notice these neat literary connections. <laughs> but they're not just literary connections, they're theological connections that have something to do with our lives. And my guess is that one of the things that we should at least in a very broad way, understand from this and contextualize it is, while men and women are very different and husbands and wives are very different, the same kinds of things exist in women's lives as exist in men's lives, only sometimes in different areas. The woman wrestles with God about her things, the man wrestles with God about his things. The woman gets into a hiring and sacrifice and reward situation. The man gets into a hiring, sacrifice, and reward situation. They're not the same. The man isn't hiring himself out to have children. He's working in the area of flocks and the cultural mandate, so to speak. The woman is working in the domestic area, at least in this passage. Those aren't absolutes, of course, but they're here. But there are a lot of parallels. And at least we can say, practically speaking, that the same kinds of things go on. Maybe it's interesting that if you think about it, Jacob is out there wrestling with Laban. He's spending the night. He's sacrificing himself. He's getting his wages. And he's probably thinking, I'm the only person going through all this. But meanwhile, his wives are going through the same kinds of things in their area. And all of it is God's way of preparing these people to be a nation. So there's that much we can say about it. We have to say something because this whole business of hiring is tremendously stressed here. Hiring, hiring, hiring. Even the name hire and then as it's going to, it's just all over the whole context. It's there for a reason and that's the best I've been able to do with it. So meditate on these things and let's at least finish up Leah's children. Verse 19 and 20. Once again Leah became pregnant. She bore a sixth son to Jacob, and Leah said, God, the author of life, has presented me with a good present. This time my husband will prize me, will honor me, for I have borne him six sons. She called his name Prince Zebulun the patriarch originally known as Prince. God has presented me with a present. The word present is Zebud. My husband will honor me. The word honor is Zebul. Both of these are punned into this name Zebulun, which means honored one. It's got it as Prince here, but the word Prince in the Bible, the English word Prince is usually used to translate a different word, so I think Honored is probably a better translation here. Leah hopes to be honored this time. There is no indication that Jacob kept hating her. Jacob loved Rachel and hated, that is, disdained Leah. Seems to be over by now. A reconciliation seems to have taken place 
And of course, we have come down pretty much to the end of the 20 years and we're about to go back into the land. Zebulun was probably a baby in arms when they came back in the promised land. She has another child afterwards, and we have to mention her, and she's Dinah. Dinah is a female form of the word Dan. If you didn't know that, means the same thing, vindication. Dan is vindication. Leah feels fully vindicated as Rachel had felt vindicated when Bilhah bore Dan. Remember that Bilhah's first child, which was Rachel's first child, is called Dan, and she says, I feel vindicated because God has given me at least a surrogate child. I'm not inferior to my sister, at least to a surrogate. I can have a child and I feel vindicated. Now, Leah's last child is named Dan, and that matches something we saw last time. Does anybody remember the other connection between first and last? Leah's first and Rachel's last have basically the same name. Reuben, Ben, Pony. And remember the name Reuben? Yahweh has seen my affliction, Oni, my affliction, and when Benjamin is born at the end, son of my affliction. And so there's a match between the very first son and the very last son in terms of their names. Now we have, within this, Rachel's first, who is Dan, and Leah's last, which is Dinah, the same name. So it's just interesting. This is something you probably don't catch because you don't hear it in Hebrew, like me, of course. I know Hebrew so well. No, if it wasn't for the commentaries, I wouldn't catch all this stuff either. But you see these links, and certain themes are here. A son connected with suffering and the vindication of the woman. Now, what should that remind you of if we just pull those two things out? A vindication of the woman and a son connected with suffering. We're in Genesis. What does this say to the woman? Through great difficulty, you're going to have a son who will have his heel bruised. So the woman is vindicated and delivered in having these children. This is what the woman is all about, especially in Genesis. Rebecca says, what's the point of me being alive if both of my sons go bad? Rachel says, what's the point of me being alive if I can't have any kids? doesn't mean that every woman has to think that way. But it means in the book of Genesis where all of these women are thinking about having the messianic seed who's going to suffer affliction and tribulation that's important to them because of where they lived and the kind of consciousness that the Holy Spirit worked in them at that time for their purposes. So, wanted to point that out to you. There's no big saying here about the name Dinah because this passage is about the sons who are the sons of the kingdom. And throughout Genesis, the father-son theology is preeminent. Everything in Genesis is about the first two persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is only mentioned about four times in the whole book of Genesis. Of course, he's always there. But the Genesis is about the father and the son. We get to the later part, you know, the next part of the Bible, and the son comes into prominence. But now we've got fathers and sons. All these sons are important. The women become important later on, like in Judges. 
Judges is all about women. Continually. Warrior brides, warrior mothers, and all the rest. So, different books have different focuses. This one is on sons. So the women are there in a second way as mothers of the seed, but the preeminent thing that's being emphasized in the birth passages is the sons who are going to come forth and deliver the world, or supposed to. Finally then, Rachel and Joseph, God kept Rachel in mind. Remember this passage is organized thematically, not chronologically. Rachel and Joseph, verses 22 to 24. And God kept Rachel in mind. God hearkened to her and opened her womb. And she became pregnant and bore a son. And she said, God has a soft my reproach, has removed my approach. So she called his name Yosef, saying, May Yahweh add, or Yosef, another son to me. Now we got the name Yahweh comes in again here at the end of the passage. So at the very beginning, when Leah's children are born, it's Yahweh, the husband, the covenant God, who is being a true husband to Leah. And now at the end, Rachel comes to the same thought. If yes, Jacob is her husband, but ultimately none of us guys are good enough to be husbands. You've got to have a better husband than us. And Yahweh is there as the husband you can always rely on. And the father that you can always rely on. So, the word removed. He has removed my reproach is Asaph. May he add another son is Yosef. Both of these are almost identical. These two are almost identical. And they're linked conceptually. To remove reproach is to open the future to new possibilities. And perhaps another son as well. You remove reproach. You move out from under. Curse is way too strong a word, but something like that. Move out from under a curse-like situation and their new possibilities. You're out from under the cloud. And removing reproach is what circumcision is all about. Joshua 5, 9 says that at the hill of foreskins, their circumcision removed the reproach of Israel. The reproach was rolled off by circumcision. It was after he was circumcised that Abraham begat Isaac. Now you want to talk about reproach. We need to say any more. Abraham means mighty father. All these years people are laughing at him because his name means mighty father and he doesn't have any kids. Now there's reproach. I mean, you can imagine that. There might have been people who said, you know, it's awfully arrogant of you, sir, to call yourself Abraham when you only have one child by a concubine. I mean, he may well have encountered just that much reproach from some people. At the very least, they laughed at him behind his back, but circumcision removes the reproach, and after Abraham is circumcised, he has Isaac. It opens up the new possibilities. Now we have something similar. Reproach is removed, and maybe I'll have another son as well. So that's the link between the two. You remove the reproach of Egypt at the circumcision later on, and... You move into the promised land and you get all this new stuff. New possibilities open up. The reproach of Egypt has been hanging over you for 40 years in the wilderness because it would have been just one year, but the sin meant that it extended for 40 years. Finally, the reproach has been removed. Now, new possibilities. 
So that much, baptism gives us that. We get the new possibilities in the new world. And she has reason then to think, maybe I'll have another son as well, although it's a number of years before she does. And she dies in the process of having Benjamin, as we'll see when we get to it. Joseph is set apart in the narrative because he's the son born after the miracle. It's Joseph who carries the miracle son theme forward and fulfills it as regards the book of Genesis. So remember, Isaac is the miracle son. He's born on the other side of circumcision. He's born on the other side of God opening Sarah's womb. Both of those are miracle change from the old to the new situations. Rebecca, the same. Jacob and Esau are miracle sons. Jacob is the one who is, and now here it is again. And it's listed last so that in the way the passage is set up, we have all the natural sons, and then we have the miracle, and then we have the miracle son. So we have all the Ishmaels, and then we have the Isaac. And Ishmael was not a bad son, and he's in heaven. We've studied all that before, but he wasn't the chosen son. Joseph is going to be the chosen son. He carries the miracle son theme forward. Rachel now uses the name Yahweh, which now returns to the narrative. Here at the end of the narrative, the name Yahweh comes in again, the covenant husband God, the way it is in this passage. Yahweh is always the covenant name, and when you're talking this way, in this kind of passage, it's covenant husband. Since Joseph was born at the time the second seven years were finished, he was about the same age as Judah, My guess is a couple of hours older at least because he's the one that the leadership falls to when the first three sons have sinned. Remember, we'll just read it and we'll quit. Verse 25, It came to pass once Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Set me free that I may go back to my land. And then he's talking to staying and serving longer. So that tells you when Joseph was born. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.